So um, I am sitting here with a blast from the past, but also the present. Uh, Jerry Halvin, and many of you know him as my very first triathlon coach, also known as Coach Monster, which a nickname that he hated. <laughs> and, and still hates. And still hates, which I don't call him that anymore. Um, so Jerry is an Atlanta resident like I am. He is a husband, a dad of two daughters who, when we started working together, were like infants. Yeah. And now... <laughs> Scary. I know. And he is also a Kona and 70.3 Worlds Qualifier. And he's the one who talked me into doing Ironman Coeur d'Alene as my first Ironman. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that I would have Jerry on today to talk about exercise, but specifically heart rate training in exercise, because this is a huge topic. It's a, it's a big topic that people don't, <laughs> it's like the elephant in the room, really. But when I first started in fitness and triathlon, Jerry had me get a heart rate monitor, wear it, and stay at this ungodly certain low zone. And I, like at the time, I didn't know what that meant, but I did it, and I did it for two years all the way to Ironman. And when I eventually became a coach and learned what it meant, I actually love the way that Jerry incorporated it into my life early on without it being overly complicated. Um, he made it so simple. So I really think heart rate training was a big key to getting my uncoordinated, completely untalented and endurance sport body moving and efficient at moving. So welcome, Jerry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's first, to break the ice, talk about your first memory of meeting me. <laughs> I have, so for those of you, most of you listening probably know the story of how Jerry changed my life. Um, I the short story is I attended his spinning class. It was incredible. Um, fast forward, he started coaching me, and here I sit now. That's pretty much the quick and dirty. So what is your first memory of me and your impression I remember of me? seeing you in spinning class, a very clear picture of you. The determination in your face told me a lot. It told me, one, that you were an ex-athlete. I wasn't sure exactly what you had done, whether it was basketball, weightlifting, badminton, any, fencing. you know, underwater basket weaving, whatever. <laughs> but I could tell that you were an athlete. I could tell that you were determined to become better through athletics. And I could also tell that you didn't know what the hell you were doing <laughs> on the bike. So How bad was it? Yeah. What, did, what was like the three? No, the, so I could tell that you were pushing way too hard that your pedal stroke was very uneven, so you jammed down from the top of the pedal stroke and didn't pay attention to the upstroke. These are all, by the way, very common things. And keep in mind, at this point, I've been teaching spinning for about a decade, so it's very easy for me to recognize um, new people who haven't been on a bike very much, uh, as well as the difference between people who are there for recreation and people who are there to get better. So I recognize that you didn't know what you were doing, but I also recognized that you wanted to do it well. Okay. So what's the biggest, I mean, we worked together for two years and then I took a Jerry hiatus and actually <laughs> I'm back working with Jerry as my coach again. So there's the surprise, but I actually contacted him, what, a couple of months ago and I said, I'm looking for a new coach. Do you have any suggestions? Like literally just thinking. I need a new coach and he knows people and he's like, well, I'm available. And I about fell out of my chair and I thought, oh gosh, he's willing to get back into this mess again. But so what's the main difference you see between the athlete 
from, say, 2013 leading up to Ironman Coeur d'Alene and the athlete that is sitting across from you now? <laughs> a couple things. Uh, you have a lot more knowledge about the what, and you have the scars from <laughs> having battled through what is a difficult journey. Uh, not just for you. I mean, any any athlete's journey from not doing triathlon at all to an Ironman is a significant challenge. Yeah. And so you sit here today a lot more experienced, a lot more knowledgeable, both about yourself and about yourself as a triathlete. And I, I make a distinction there because... To me, the real value of this sport is it teaches us about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Much more valuable than are we better at swimming, biking, and running, but are we more balanced as human beings? Are we better spouses and friends and coworkers? And uh, so that's what I've gotten out of this sport. And I, I sensed that when you contacted me, you've gotten a lot of the same things out of the sport that I have. I also sense that you there's a little bit of... Um, maybe unmet goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, you and I have talked pretty candidly about those goals and what it's going to take for you to get to where you want to get. And frankly, the journey that you have been on so far is maybe halfway of what you need to do to get to your stated goals with me. Which so, is just terrifying to me. But yeah. But I was starting from a ground zero. That's right. Or actually probably a negative. Was no. I like in the basement of no, a large no, building? No, <laughs> I think this is an important concept for people. So if you have done any kind of organized activities, I'll go broader than just athletics, the concept of using your, your mind to help control your body, that could be dance, it could be uh, being in, in musicals in high school, uh, community theater, I mean, anywhere, any thing where you're trying to use your mind to help control your body in a certain way is going to be helpful. Another step above that is organized athletics, where you're actually using your mind to do something athletic, to control your body to do something athletic, is, is a step above. Um, then you go into areas like your background. I mean, the amount of mental focus it takes to do powerlifting is beyond most people's understanding. It is, when I think back on it, it's crazy because you're actually moving an object that doesn't want to be moved. Yeah. And, and I realized that very, it was very hardcore the other day when I went to the gym and this guy was deadlifting and I thought, well, I can lift that because I used to. Right. No, it didn't move. I mean, I don't know how I got that stuff off the ground. Well, but, but, <laughs> but so that's, that's one of the keys that I look for when I talk to people who, who want to be coached is what in their background can be leveraged. So you have a tremendous amount of muscle memory and psychological memory of how do I accomplish something that at first seems impossible. So that's one of the intangibles mm -hmm. that um, MV wanted me to ask you. One of her questions was, can you talk about some of the intangibles that make an athlete successful in achieving their goals? So that mental fortitude yeah, and, is and, so much. And honestly, the biggest role that I play uh, in coaching you and frankly anybody else is how to get them out of their own way, yes, right? So we so are true. our own worst limiters, and that's that's a universal truth. And by the way, it applies to me. I mean, I've had the same issues with my coach, and yes, I have a coach because I believe in the efficacy of having a coach, and what do they do? They help you see your own blind spots and get out of your own way sometimes. Right. 
Well, let's get back to the topic. I, I think we should do like a 12-parter with you. Like, you should be like Tony Robbins and you get your own video series and we can get you on QVC. Yeah. Or well, would you prefer he, like Home Shopping? Well, he and I look a lot alike. He's 6'9 <laughs> and I'm 5'11. Um, that's about the... Yeah, well, do you have like similar, you know, mm. booming voices? Yeah, I don't know about that. But as far as on the scale of one to inspiration, I think I think you're up there with Tony for me, Jerry. Wow, that's uh, really daunt are. that's daunting. Thank I you. owe this guy a lot, you guys. Okay, so let's talk. Um, let's talk heart rate training. Let's talk about what. Okay, you are um, a brand new baby athlete. You bought this watch that looks like a computer, and you're sixty pounds overweight, and you want to go to the gym because you don't really know what you want at this point. You just know that the pain, <laughs> the pain you are experiencing, is great enough to make you do something else. So. Heart rate training, how does that fit into, say, a true beginner's life? Yeah, let, let me start off with a, I'll call it a crude analogy that if, if you recall, Meredith, I said this in the class, you may or may not remember that, but exercising without a heart rate monitor is like driving your car without a speedometer. You can do it, and you can sort of gauge what speed the car is going at based upon other data around you, but why would you? Same concept. So it really comes down to this. Do you want to train as efficiently as you can? And so for those of us who have jobs and families and you know, demands outside of work and family that, that extend us and, and put challenges on us in terms of our schedule, then if you want the most efficient training possible, then you want to use that data. The key in, in the whole thing for me is it can become so complicated that I, I read this somewhere that, and I can't remember where. I wish I could to tell you this, give them credit for it. But well, we can put it in the notes. Yeah, we figure it out. When the servant becomes the master, then it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Heart rate data is really a servant to help you be more efficient in your training. So some people, uh, the, the the Germans are famous for this, by the way, and the the late 80s through the late 90s in Ironman training, they were absolutely strict about their heart rate training. So in San Diego and Boulder, where some of these pros train, the Americans would be blowing by them mm -hmm. in, in the early part of the year. And the Germans would say, okay, I am going to never go above low zone two, come hell or high water. And the Americans are going, what the hell are you doing? I'm not you know, I would get nothing out of that training. The Germans, and I can't say this in German, I wish I could, but the, the famous phrase that they say is, we will see you in October. Uh -huh. And what that meant was, we're training a specific way, and we will build in a certain way that we will crush you in October. Right. Well, guess what happened? In October, when the Ironman Championships came around, the Germans were setting bike records left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. And the Americans are, and, and the Kiwis and the Aussies are all going, what the hell are the Germans doing? Why are they so good on the bike? Well, it's because right. they incorporated heart rate training. Now, one could argue maybe they went a little too far in their rigidity, but um, I don't think we're going to get into the sociopolitics of the German <laughs> maybe, mentality. Maybe, why not? That's part 12. Um, and I do have some German in me, so I, I'm <laughs> speaking from my experience. But the, the idea is this. Use the data around heart rate to govern how much exertion I am putting forth for a given workout, and even more importantly, for a given segment of a given workout. 
So let's rewind just a minute. So when we're talking about heart rate training, heart rate data, we are literally talking about a strap or a wristband that is measuring the number of beats per minute mm -hmm. that your heart is beating. So for those of you that are brand spanking new, that's what we're talking about. We, we're talking about that's the data. Is, is your beats per minute, BPM, beats per minute. And yep. so when Jerry's talking about the Germans training in low zone two, we'll get into that, but low zone two is kind of like the slow, um, can yeah. go all day zone. Right, it's aerobic. It's, yeah. you're, you're able to go at a conversational pace. And so there's a lot of information out there, right? If you Google heart rate training, you'll, you'll get thousands of articles that you can read and, and they can be confusing. There are some uh, experts in the field who will say, well, you need to break your heart rate zones into seven different yeah. zones, right? There are others that I say, glaze over at I do too, times. I do too. And so if you looked at, at Meredith's Training Peaks account that, that I manage, <laughs> Which is not we, public, we go, Jerry. Yeah, well, we, those of you who want to buy into that, I, I know her password. So um, we, we, strict, or we stick with a five-zone method. And, and quite simply, let's break that down. The first zone is called active recovery, zone one. And, and I'll go back to what you started with. If you're brand new and you're 50 pounds overweight and you're wondering, what should I do? Let me just tell you this. The most important thing is to move. Right, yeah. Get up and move. It doesn't necessarily matter whether or not you have a heart rate monitor or anything. Just move. Right. But as you start to become more comfortable with this concept of I'll, I'll say prescribed exercise or prescribed exertion, then having a heart rate monitor will make you more efficient in what you're trying to do. Because here's the key. It's about what are you trying to accomplish for a given workout. If you are trying to accomplish cardiovascular endurance, then you're going to want to target a certain zone. If you're trying to maximize your metabolic output, you're actually going to have to go way beyond what you think you should do. And right. we'll get to this later, but that's where strength training comes in right. or speed work. Right. There's a common misconception that, well, if I'm a triathlete, I need to do everything right. low and slow. And the truth of the matter is you can do that for a certain period of time, but fairly quickly you will plateau. And then here's the kicker. You'll actually be working against yourself right. if fat burning is what you want to do. Which is the way that I can do Ironman for two straight years and lose zero pounds despite riding yeah. 100 miles. Because your weekend. body had completely adapted to right. the training that you were doing. And here's the worst part. It was actually becoming more efficient at storing right. fat, it not burning it. It was a great thing. I yeah. mean, if I was trying to survive back in the caveman days, exactly. I'd have been, you know, it outlasted everyone. Exactly. Um, well, so, what if you don't know what your goals are? Okay, so go back to yeah. the athlete just starting out. I, I would say, um, without overcomplicating it, trying to read books on the matter or whatever, just quite simply, is my goal to be more active? And if you're going from zero, you need to plan this out. You cannot go from zero to doing Ironmans in a week, a month. Right. Really, the, the analogy that, that I have come to understand is Ironman training, for example, it's like planting a crop. It takes a full year, and you must go through all four seasons of that year <laughs> to harvest the crop. So get, be if patient. If I was a crop, what was I harvesting? <laughs> what did, I want to say pumpkins. I'd say like, mangoes, mangoes or something 
Um, Something with a tough skin yeah, and a squishy inside. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a whole other episode. But So you told me we were going to get into the psychology of if I were a fruit, what would I be? You can't not get into yeah. the, a double negative. That's two English rangers sitting here. Let's right. see how many. We're going to get diphthongs and gerunds and everything else. <laughs> gerunds. But oh my gosh. back to, I would say, be very simple in your goals. If you're starting from zero, excuse me, it's about can I be active three times a week? Right. And active could be quite simply walking around the block. It could be going to the gym and walking on the treadmill. I mean, it start. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for the perfect and, and right. end up missing the good. That's such a big thing. I mean, I, I talk about this all the time where um, I used to say, when I weigh 180 pounds, yeah. then I will do things. Yeah. Well, guess what? I still would have done nothing because I'm still not 180 pounds. Yeah, and, and, and I mean... This is not the topic, but I'll just throw this out for everybody. We too. go off topic all the time. It's the, okay, Jerry. It's interesting that you couched that goal that way. I would say, first of all, a weight measure is the wrong metric. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. And is not something that, I mean, those are things that will happen if you do the right things. But that's, that's where, not to interrupt you, which I just did, but... That's how much I've changed, right? Yeah. So when we first started together, it was all about wait, 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 and scale, scale, scale. I could give a flub now. Honestly, and that's a huge, I mean, we just glossed over that, but that's a huge monumental step forward. Right. And think about how our society puts that into our psyche about it's a weight, it's a dress size, it's a, um, you know, whether you wear a bikini or not. I mean, all of those things are baggage that a lot of people, and by the way, I have two daughters, I had two sisters, so I'm around women my whole life, right? There's a lot of baggage that's carried around there that, frankly, is other people's baggage that you yeah. got to let go. So you're a more centered person, you're more comfortable in your skin, and frankly, that's what we're all trying to achieve. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that that's, I think, when you ask, you know, how are you different than... Than the first time we met. Back to the heart rate training. Um, the, I want to talk. I want to talk about mangoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, are they ripe mangoes no. or okay? The. So if I'm starting from scratch, uh, there's a, a very simple method. Which, as a purist, and I'll tell you, I'm I'm a perfectionist. And I'm a purist, so I even hesitate to say this. But if, if you're starting from scratch. The old method of 220 minus your age is going to give you. So the number 220 minus your age will give you your maximum heart rate. This is the, a, a sort of statistical model that people have put together over the last 40, 50 years and maybe even beyond that. So 220 minus your age equals maximum Max heart, heart rate. rate. And okay. then you then use a percentage of that maximum as your gauge. So um, anything that's between 50% and somewhere around 75% of that maximum would be what we had referred to before as zone one or aerobic. And you'll know that you're doing that because it it feels easy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And by the way, the less fit you are, the higher your heart rate's gonna be in low levels of exertion. Right. So your heart will adapt like the rest of your musculature is going to adapt to that exertion. So the concept of fitness is really measured by if you are disciplined enough to to pay attention to your zones and stay low and slow enough in the beginning, you adapt. I'll give you an example of an athlete that I worked with 
who was actually an 800-meter runner in college. Well, those of you that have run track or people that have watched track can, can guess that that's anaerobic, meaning that is going way beyond your normal ability to just walk or, or run even. So he came to me and he was wildly fit on the high end and wildly unfit on the low end. Mm -hmm. So the prescription for this guy who was a college athlete, if he wanted to do endurance training, the prescription was you need to stay in low zone two, which for him at the time, was a walk. it was an 11 minute, 45 second per minute mile. Which drove a sprinter insane. Yeah, so, <laughs> but this is back to, do you buy into the physiology that's behind this? Because the truth of the matter is this heart rate training thing is all based on science. It's not, it's not a, a bunch of, uh, you know, mystery or magic. It's really science. How strictly you follow it is part of your own personality, but the science behind it is very sound. And that is your body will use certain fuel types at certain exertion levels. How do we measure that exertion? One way of measuring it is heart rate. Another way of measuring it is something that's called perceived exertion. Some people see that like relative perceived exertion or RPE. You'll see that acronym out there. Um, and that's a method to like measure it based off how you feel. How you feel, exactly, yeah. right? So if you, if you can't even answer the question because <laughs> you're neurologically shutting down from the exertion it's level, you're on the high end of the <laughs> RPE scale, right? But back to this guy, well, he, so he trained, and within a matter of about six weeks, he went from an 11-minute and 40-second mile to an 8-minute and 30-second mile at the same heart rate. Right. So what happened there? His body adapted. If he had not done that, if I had said, go off and run an 830 mile, he would have gone anaerobic, he would have been in high zone four, and that's all he would have developed. So think of heart rate zones as dimensions of your, your overall engine that you can use to do activity. Mm -hmm. You have to develop the low end of the engine, and here's the kicker, and the high end. Right. So you're actually wanting to make your, your foundation, that mid area, as broad as possible. And you do that by combining long and slow efforts with short and intense efforts. But you have to do both. So a lot of triathletes think, oh, well, I'm never going to be sprinting, so why would I train that? Mm -hmm. And what their body does is it just it eventually adapts to the low and slow stuff, and then you're really getting less and less return on your investment. Right, right, which I experienced. Yeah, which, and so have I. I've been yeah. doing this for almost 20 years now. Yeah. And so I have to continually adjust how I train to make sure that my body is still adapting. Well, and I see, like, two takeaways from this. Like, as a new athlete or someone starting in fitness, I think a lot of us start out and go to the gym, and we, like, get on the treadmill, and we say, I'm going to run today. And we start running. I know my first experience yeah. running in 2010, maybe 2009, I went to an Anytime Fitness. It was like 10 o'clock at night. My kids were like baby babies. I ran balls out for yeah. eight minutes. I bruised the bottoms of my feet. <laughs> and, I, and I hated myself. And yeah. I thought, how am I ever going to improve? But that was me going completely blind into fitness, right? Because right, right. that's what you think you're supposed to do. You're looking around. Right. You're seeing people running. And you also think, sorry to interrupt you, but you also think that if I'm not dying, I'm not working. Right. Which is 
a complete and utter misconception that frankly leads to injury. Mm -hmm. And it also leads most often to people saying, well, I can't do this, and they quit. Right. The flip side, though, is if, if all you ever do is go low and slow, then you don't get the results. And then you say, well, I invested 30 days, 45 days, 90 days into it, and I didn't get very much results. Yeah. So it, it's about being purposeful in your training. And part of being purposeful is understanding that speedometer, the right. heart rate. Well, and let's talk timing. Like I've had a couple people say, well, the adaptation, you know, to get your heart rate training adapted and to be efficient in zone two is six to eight weeks. Yeah. Well, you and I started training me in October of mm -hmm. this year, and we sit here at the end of March, and I'm still mm -hmm. working on it. And and But I see the improvement. Yeah. It, it is so wildly variable based upon the individual that it is hard to give a range. And if you recall, I hesitated to answer when you asked me. So, because you, you, you have to, and, and everybody listening knows Meredith, right? So, tell me exactly how long this is going to take so I can write it in a notebook and then at that date check it. And if it isn't there, I'm going to be pissed. Um, it, it depends on your level of fitness. At the start of that, it depends on all the work you've done before that. It depends on whether you're injured, whether you're sick. I mean, there's just so many variables in that equation. But, but generally speaking, you will see a noticeable, measurable improvement in six to eight weeks, which we have seen with you. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that you've peaked out on your improvement? No. But, you know, we'll know probably within another six to eight weeks, whether or not we've plateaued there. I mean, I think it took me 12. And that's so... But that, I'm slow at everything in endurance sports. I like to take my time and make yeah. sure that I get my money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and while we may look at that in tongue-in-cheek and say, you know, ha-ha, the, the truth of the matter is any sustainable change, and that's the key word, sustainable change, will take... As long as it takes. Yep. So now I'm channeling your podcast partner, right? Right. The It is what it is, and it will take what it will take. And so the key message is patience and being kind to yourself in the process <laughs> and not beating yourself up when you haven't immediately achieved whatever, whatever it is that you think you're supposed to achieve. Right. And we talk about that quote that... Um, don't give up on a dream because of the time it takes to accomplish it because yeah. the time's going to pass anyway. Yeah, I'll tell you guys, it took me five consecutive years and more than 45,000 miles of training to qualify for Kona. I gave every molecule of my existence and it still took being lucky on race day. Mm -hmm. So... And I use this, by the way, with my daughters. So my, my daughters are 17 and 14, respectively. Those poor girls. Yeah. <laughs> because kidding. they are frustrated by, you know, they didn't achieve X and, you know, they're, you know, I should give up. And I said, well, you could do that. Um, but I'm just telling you, if you've worked five years for something and it, it didn't work, okay, then maybe we'll talk about whether or not it's a realistic goal. Otherwise, yeah, you know, keep at it. So how on the scope of parenting like how has <laughs> this is totally off topic but has that really helped you with parenting like when or do you think I'm it, not sure anything has helped <laughs> me in parenting um other than you know our kids pick up a lot more than yeah, we think that's they what do I mean. so I think that they have developed a little bit of um <laughs> indirect 
grit mm -hmm. from watching me. Now, I've made many, many mistakes and um, have made choices that I would like to not have made, but they have seen me consistently commit to a long-range, difficult goal, and I think, yeah, by by any measure, I think they've picked up something about that, and hopefully it'll help them in their lives, but, you know, I don't claim to be any award-winning parent for sure. <laughs> well, I know, like, just my kids, they're a lot younger, eight and nine, but I feel like when I tell them when we work through a problem at school or whatever yeah. you know so and so's mean or I'm not ever going to be good at drawing transformers <laughs> like I can pull an analogy mm -hmm. well mommy remember the race that mommy did in the dark that's what they always talk about when I say do you want to go to a race they're like is it one in the dark <laughs> because if, if it's a race in the dark they don't want to go mm. um, but I, I do feel that as a human and as a parent having those experiences really helps relate to kids because they can understand how hard it is to ride a bike and to run. And yeah, and I think the other angle there is humility. They, My kids have seen me in races when I have blown up, and they have seen the, I'll call it the raw side of not achieving what I wanted to achieve in that race, and then they've seen me mourn that, and then they've seen me recover from that and see think and be able to speak about here's what I took out of that experience yeah. so I gotta believe that they're gonna be able to, to harvest that later on but remember they're two teenage girls so right now I'm the <laughs> dumbest person on the planet well, that's right yeah. I mean I think any, I don't think it has to be racing either I think kids respond and see um, us as parents moving and, and it makes a big difference but well let's get back to heart rate so yeah. how do you actually we, we talk about zone one zone two how do you set your set your zone so if you don't do the 220 minus your age and you want a more precise measurement of what zone one is for yeah. you what zone two to it and let's talk real quick so zone two and below is where you're training your aerobic endurance yeah anything over zone three is your anaerobic well yeah it's maybe it, mid zone three. yeah i was gonna say yeah. it gets a little dicey when you i mean so there's a let me answer the first question i'll come back the first question is for those of you out there that are perfectionists, and I'm guessing there might be a, a, a decent percentage of folks listening to this, the most precise way to set your heart rate zones is to do something called a blood lactate test. And it used to be that those tests were only done in labs in New Mexico, right? That, that <laughs> really? It was, it, was, no, it was very expensive, <laughs> but it was, it was just really not that easy to find people who could do those tests in a local area. The good news now is it, if you Google blood lactate testing, you'll probably find four or five people in your town, wherever you are, if you're near a major city, that do it. Um, what that test involves is, generally speaking, it's done on a bike because it's easier to take a blood sample every minute on a bike than, than right. running on a treadmill. Uh, but generally speaking, you set up a bike on a trainer and you ride... A certain amount of warm-up and then the test begins and every minute a blood sample is taken every six minutes excuse me starting every six minutes every and, minute. I'm sorry thank you <laughs> every six minutes but then it gets to be the frequency of the sampling actually gets to be uh, faster near the end of the test as much as as hard as it was to get blood out of me I was thinking every minute oh my gosh I would yeah. have never made it <laughs> back to the mango comment. it's hard to get blood out of a it turnip is. or a mango or a mango um, but the, the 
the field unit that this person, whoever's doing the test, does is they take that blood and they measure the amount of lactate that is in the blood. Without getting too scientific, right, as your muscles work, you create, and everyone's heard this term, lactic acid, right, in the muscle fiber. At a low enough heart rate, the body can actually use that as fuel. So it, you'll hear the term recycle. It can recycle that lactic acid and burn it as fuel. At too high a heart rate, and this is your story of getting on the treadmill and running eight minutes, balls out, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, and this happens generally at your anaerobic threshold, which is somewhere around zone four going into zone five, you begin to produce more lactic acid than you can process. At that period, you only have a certain amount of exertion left before you collapse. And anybody who's ever done what you've done, and so have I, I've done that too, where you just go from zero all out until you're like, I cannot go anymore, and you right. stop. You have experienced that flush of lactic acid. Now, I'm sure as a triathlete, if you've done hill intervals, for yeah. example, on the bike, where we'll do, you know, 30 seconds to a minute and a half as hard as you can go you feel that flush in your legs that burning sort of heavy sensation in your legs that's an infusion of lactic acid mm -hmm. and it if it comes too fast and the body can't process it then you're anaerobic and you only have so much time that you can actually exert yourself anaerobically right so imagine Usain Bolt trying to run his 100 meter time for frankly a 400 right so if you notice if you measure the 100 meter time and you look at what he does when he when he runs the four by 400 relay it's slower and then if you ran the 800 it'd be even slower and so on and so forth you, you can only exert yourself at that level for a very limited period of time but here's the key guys in your training you need to do those high exertion efforts so it's a combination, I keep coming back to this concept, it's a combination of low and slow, that is zone two or, or lower, and ideally it's right at low zone two because you're fat burning and you're beginning to exert the body. High zone four or zone five, when you mix those in, is, is actually really, really, really difficult, but that's the way that you maximize your your efficiency and your fitness. Um, so when you talk about zone two um, and you want to adapt, you don't want to be pushing the top of zone two. You want to be like low zone two or mid, right? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a great point and it's absolutely key. And this is the frustrating, this is yeah, where I lost my mind. Right, this. this is where it takes a lot of discipline and trust because your body will feel like, wait a minute, this is fairly easy so I'm not getting that much out of it the whole point of training in that low zone too is you begin Meredith used the term adaptation so you begin to adapt at the cellular level right <laughs> so the actual cells begin to process oxygen more efficiently back to my story about the guy who went from 1140 to 815 or 820 whatever the, the pace was the way he did that was by going long and slow and his body began to adapt right and so if he stayed at that exertion level he just kept getting faster and faster at that same level if you don't 
if you go into what I call as a coach no man's land. And right. no man's land is high zone two to low zone four. And that's where a lot of triathletes spend every minute of their right. training. A lot of times because we don't know our right zones. They don't know their zones. They don't, they're not paying attention to it. And they feel like, well, I'm, I'm working hard. And or I should I, be going faster. Right. If yeah. I work hard, then I'm going to get the most out of this workout. And the truth of the matter is, if that's what the prescribed workout is, then great. But if it isn't, you're not adapting either your aerobic right. or your anaerobic. You're just in the middle there. I spent a lot of a lot of time, probably the better part of a season, in the wrong zone. Yeah. And I did, and I was so frustrated because I was neither burning fat yeah. nor getting faster, and I couldn't figure it out despite best efforts. And then I realized I had my zones wrong. That's I right. thought I was zone two. I was in no man's land. That's right, and that is the most common. Well, there are two really common errors that triathletes make. Number one, they go too fast when they're supposed to be going slow, and they go too slow when they're supposed to be going fast. Because the the flip side of that is, when I ask you to go to zone five for a prescribed amount of time, I'll look at the file that you upload and see if I say you need to be you know all out for twenty seconds. I'm going to look at that. And yes, the I know. And the majority, <laughs> I'll say this, the majority of triathletes, um, they won't do the 20 seconds because you know why? It hurts. hurts. It is awful. And then the flip side is when I say I want you in low zone two and I look at and see you in high zone two or whatever, well, you know, I don't know. No. <laughs> That's not my voice. No. Yeah. <laughs> So what you're saying, in summary, triathletes are a nonsensical, stubborn bunch. <laughs> yeah, and, and and coming from someone who's so open-minded and easygoing, right, I have a hard exactly. time understanding the stubbornness. Um, but, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all of this. The, the, the key is do a little bit of research. Those of you that are, are perfectionists, find out, get a blood lactate test if that's the, the, the way you want to go. Don't wait for that but schedule it and then pre prescribe, either have a coach or, or prescribe your own workouts to be a combination of low and slow and really, really hard. Yeah. And it all depends, here's the key, it depends on the purpose that you're going after. Are you trying to maximize fat burn? If you are, then you need to do the combination. If you're trying to get faster, then you need to do the combination maybe in a slightly different way, but in other words, be intentional with what your goal is and then use heart rate training to maximize your efficiency of achieving that goal. That's kind of the summary of the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, and I'll put all this in the show notes so you guys have, you don't have to you know, memorize your percentages or whatever, but I'll, we'll put lots of resources up for you. Um, but Jerry, what do you think, like as a coach, you've been coaching for what, 15 years probably? Yeah. So what is the most common mistake that you see athletes making I mean whether you want to touch on beginners or advanced athletes what's the number one mistake do you think um and maybe it's not a mistake I'll call it a characteristic uh it's impatience mm -hmm. so it's whether they read an article in triathlete magazine and they want to to you know I, I should be able to achieve x in y amount of time so it's it's, it's having some kind of externally imposed goal that's unrealistic and then being impatient about getting there and then I'll say this it's being 
too critical or judgmental on yourself about everything. Well, everything, but it's so it's it's about focusing on some arbitrary number, whether mm-hmm. it be a race time or a weight or a dress size or, or whatever, instead of focusing on the process. Right. Because if you focus on the process, the other things will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think it's patience that's missing, um, and I think it's maybe being focused on the wrong metrics. And I also think, you know, to add on to that, looking back at where you started, I think, I remember before uh, Coeur d'Alene in 2013, I had all sorts of issues, as I always do, but I, I mean, I did elliptical work because I had a hip injury, mm-hmm. and I, I remember calling you and saying, Jerry, I am not ready for this race, and you said, go back in your training peaks and look at all you have done for two years. And I did, and I saw a lot of holes, but I also saw a lot of progress and a lot of hours. And I think when we start to trip ourselves up and think, oh, I suck, or I'm never gonna get better, looking back on the progress is a really good tool. I think so, and I think uh, back to why why would people wanna have a coach? Yes. We we are not, we are a lot less honest with ourselves, both to the good and the bad, than we think we are. So having someone else, uh, an external sort of unbiased party to say, okay, I understand that you have an injury and I understand that you're frustrated. I understand that your confidence and your ability to execute this race might be low, but let me give you some data to think about. Go back and look at all of the training you've done in the last six, nine, 12, 18 months. And then hearing from an external party, I am confident in your ability to execute this race. Yep. Sometimes that's the difference between throwing in the towel and saying, okay, I can see that. I can see the data. And I, I'm, I don't know if you remember, but I point you back to, let's look at, at your, your key workouts. Let's look at your mm-hmm. four and five hour bikes with your 40 minute to an hour run off the bike. And I pointed out three successful key workouts in the last you know nine months yeah the data tells us you can do it right and a lot of times especially when we're you know new to the sport or to fitness in general having that I always say that you gave me a strange permission like back in 2010 because you were like you can do a triathlon I was yeah no I can't but you having and a coach will do that they'll also hold you back from doing stupid things but yeah I mean that's the the other side of of coaching for me is keeping people from doing too much too fast. Um, we, we are all trying to get somewhere, and I think it comes back to the patience part. These things take time, and they take effort, and they take, here's the key word, you said it earlier, consistency. Mm-hmm. And so if you actually go too hard too fast and you injure yourself or you get burned out, and then you don't train, this goes for triathletes as well as any other athlete. The number one way to get better is to be consistent in your efforts. And so if you burn out or get injured and you can't train, what good have you done? Right. So. Well, this was really good. I think we do need to have a 12-parter with you, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> you have lots of, lots of knowledge. So I'll put a link Call up. my agent and we'll, oh, my uh, we'll agent. negotiate. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, one final question, and I, we're steal- totally stealing this from Tim Ferriss. He asked all of his amazing what would be on your personal billboard and what would your billboard look like? <laughs> I'll help you. What, do you have a billboard in here? He's looking around his office. 
No, I'm looking around for a weapon to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> or we can think on it and have it next next episode if it's too much. I think, I think the word passionate would be on there. Um, what color would it be? It'd be red. say passionate would be on there and I would say searching. Mm-hmm. Searching and searching for examining myself, examining how ways that I play my life and how I give away everything that I have and the steps that I walk through. Um, I think passion is a good word to describe it. I think it's a good word to describe 